Hey, what's going on? It's another episode of Film Streak. My name is Rob, and look, we're going to talk about some more new movies. And I, I want to encourage you to check out the previous episode. I had a very special guest from Houston Latino Film Festival, program director Pedro Rivas. He uh, he joined me, and we talked about uh, some films from A24, which is a studio we both, and, and I'm sure a lot of people who are into films, uh, uh, are, are paying a lot of attention to and, and liking a lot of the work that they're putting out. And uh, anyway, check that one out if you have a few minutes. And, you know, before we get too much further, um, I just want to remind you, go to filmstreak.com. You can find uh, older episodes. You can subscribe. You can sign up to get new episodes by email. And you can also get a list of all of these films. Now we're approaching 300 now. You can get a list of all these films on IMDb, so you can find out where they're streaming. You can add them to your list. You can rate or review them if you like to do that. Uh, for me, it's just handy. It's a good way to keep track of them all. But also, I, I, I made that available to you if you're listening. You can go there and, and see what's up. So be sure to do that. This episode, I want to get into something that... Um, it's a genre, it's a type of film, a type of story that I guess I've always had a fascination with. And I, I, honestly, I think just audiences in general have a fascination with, which is the heist movie. Whether it's like a, a robbery or some plot to steal something or to commit a crime with a gang, with a crew, to take down the score, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I feel like even just as a plot device, it's a thing that we see in films a lot that, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's just utterly fascinating. And I think part of it is probably the idea of doing something that seems, one, it's illegal probably, or dangerous, or impossible. And, you know, it even makes me think, look, as I'm recording this right now, uh, the new Mission Impossible movie is out. And, you know, it even occurred to me, it's like all of those films, they're essentially heist films. If you really think about it, I mean, just take a second. You've got the main character. He puts together a crew. He's got to get some kind of object and do it against all odds, against all the uh, things that might stand in his way. And somehow is able to pull it off. And it's not always perfect and it doesn't always go according to plan, but the idea is that he still gets to his goal. And it's kind of strange to think that that formula of the heist movie works in a different genre, the kind of international spy thriller, right? But, um, you know, we've even seen it with The Fast and the Furious. You know, even though the first film had some elements of like, you know, some stealing, like whatever it was, like DVD players. <laughs> How stupid is that now? It wasn't until the fifth movie where it really became a big focus of the story is like, this is a heist thing. We're taking this vault out of this building. I think it was like a police station, right? And we're going to drag it through the middle of the city. Uh, you know, that's where it really laid it out, like just wore it on its sleeve. Like, no, we're a heist franchise now. And for the most part, it's kind of stuck to that in a way. Uh, it's got different characters and different uh, locations and different plots, but it's all still about kind of getting a thing or protecting a thing or getting to a person. I guess the idea is that when you have a story that involves multiple characters and there are different personalities and there are different ways of approaching something, it's just natural to make them all work or try to work in the same direction to accomplish something. And if that thing also happens to be dangerous and or illegal, uh, it raises the stakes, right? So all that said, it's like I wanted to find some films in this genre that, that I hadn't seen before. And so I managed to find a few. And there's several more, I'm sure. But these are the ones that, as I was looking through films that I had wanted to see in the past, uh, that I had on my watch list, these are the ones that really stuck out to me. So let's get into it. Okay, here we go. Film Streak 289, The Killing. Stopwatch moving up on the outside as third by a length of the quarter. 
just by accident you do get picked up. What have you done? You shot a horse. It isn't first-degree murder. In fact, it isn't even murder. In fact, I don't know what it is. The biggest mistake I made before was shooting for peanuts. There was a funny little guy named Joe Piano. My name happens Don't tell him who you are. Be a mask if you don't keep those mitts up. That's a mighty pretty head you've got on your shoulders. Do you want to keep it there, or do you want to start carrying it around in your hands? You really love me, Sherry? Of course. You'll always love me? Always and always. They're going to rob the track offices for the day's receipts. Let's say George and his boys pull his job and George gets his cut. Maybe I could take it away from him, huh? For certain reasons, including your own protection, in case anything happens, I'm not going to give you the whole story. Just your part of it. This is a film from 1956. This is probably the earliest film from Stanley Kubrick that I hadn't seen up to this point. But I wanted to see this basically because my understanding is this is the film that one showed us an early Kubrick and him maybe establishing some of his style, but also uh, tonally and stylistically his approach to this type of story and these types of characters. So it's a really interesting look at, uh, I mean, a film from almost 70 years ago and what it means, like what it would point to with other films that he would do later in his career, but also what heist movies would become if this is the template, if this is the mold that they're all kind of built from. And so here in this film, you've got Sterling Hayden. He plays uh, kind of our main character, the leader of the gang, of the crew, Johnny Clay. Uh, we start out, we're seeing him recruiting the guys, but also we're getting introduced to all the other guys and their situations, their personal life, their money issues, you know, all the things that are driving them to participate in this crime, which is they're going to hold up and rob this racetrack for I think it's like two million dollars and the first half of the film really is about just understanding who these guys are and then how they're all kind of getting in line to be a part of this and then the second half is all about execution right it's all about the day of the heist what happens how carefully planned and choreographed everything is even the the distractions the getaway all that kind of stuff one, I think it's interesting that this is really, I, I mean, it's a device now. We see it so much as a trope of the one guy who gets everything together, gets the people together, gets the plan together, and then goes off and does the job. But I think even from an early point of view, uh, in, in terms of film history, this is one of those that very clearly lines up with the idea of the filmmaking process as a little bit of a heist of its own. You know, you're doing this thing where you've got someone who's leading the crew, who's got the plan, and then everybody has to go in the same direction to get this thing done and pull it off. And sometimes it's a little bit of a magic trick. Sometimes it's uh, it's an impossible feat. And yet, you know, the idea is to come out successful. And sometimes it doesn't always happen. And in this film, I think we see that approach to it where, yeah, there's some backstabbing, there's some betrayal, there's even some misdirection in some points. But the idea that everybody's going to somehow come away with this with their money or their share or whatever, it doesn't really pan out. And in fact, I mean, there's a point where George, one of the one of the crew here, he's a cashier. He's kind of getting played by his woman, who's actually dealing with somebody else. And we see that George has his moment where he gets his payback for all of this. I, I don't want to say it's violent, but like a lot of characters don't make it to the end of this film. It, you know, so it does have a, a bit of a downbeat ending, 
but I think that at least gives it a different turn versus the uh, maybe the more conventional, more upbeat, like, oh, our main characters, our protagonists, they succeeded. They got away with what they were trying to do. Because ultimately, uh, what they're trying to do is illegal. It's 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 dangerous. And so here we see maybe a more realistic, but also uh, kind of a harder-edged ending to this whole thing. But it all plays out in a way that there's no other possible outcome we could have expected. Like, this just would have happened this way. I think when you look at it in those terms from a historical perspective of what this means for this genre of films and what the mold is that it really built. I think it's a great look at how this maybe all started. That's not to say there weren't other caper films before this, but I think this one for being so uh, tightly wound, even the narration that we hear throughout the film, it has a very uh, fast clip to it. It's almost like you're hearing a news report in a way, less than a voiceover from one of the characters. I mean, as a matter of fact, the voice is not a voice of Johnny Clay. It's not someone that we're following. It is kind of this third party, this filmmaker voice almost. And so it has a little bit of a detachment and and there's a little bit of a coldness to it even. You would expect like this voice is going to lead us to feel a certain way, but Here, the narration is very direct and is very stern in some ways, but I think that's the idea. Is like we're watching this from an outsider point of view. We're watching these guys try to pull this thing off, and if they're not successful, that's on them. I would say I recommend this, you know, in terms of understanding its place in cinema history and certainly its place in Stanley Kubrick's filmography. I don't know that it's as interesting of a watch today compared to films that have come out since then because i feel like it's been refined it's been polished it's been taken from different angles and different approaches over the years so there's going to be a film like this that probably does this more to your liking at this point but uh, you know if this is your bag this era of films or this style of film this might be just the one. It's it's worth a watch for sure. Uh, I saw this on Criterion Channel. You know, if you if you have that, or if you've ever thought about that, definitely check this out. You've got other Kubrick films there, but you've also got other films of this era. So that's a recommendation. Uh, it's a very mild recommendation, but I, I would say give it a shot. Okay, up next, Film Streak Two Ninety, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Let each of us study to approve ourselves. Hey, come back here in my car! Which way are we headed? We're good together. You're ten years too late. You stick with me, kid. You're gonna live forever. Brought back some extra goodies. Are you out of your mind? Hang on! Geronimo! Now, do you want to talk or do you want to play games? Why not do it again? What's he about and off about now? Montana Armor. We hit the same place the same way. There it is. That's it? 20 millimeter cannon with armor piercing shells. At exactly 10.30, Goody, you're going to drop Lightfoot off in the alley behind the Liberty Lounge. The window's already been fixed, so you can just climb right in there and change your clothes. At 11.30, you get in the telegraph office, and you got to get in there before 11.35, because that's when the alarm goes off. You just keep quiet, nobody gets hurt, understand? Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That sounds like something, doesn't it? So look, this is a film 
starring Clint Eastwood. And even though I'd never seen this before, I just assumed this was purely a Clint Eastwood film. And this is not at all the kind of film I expected it was going to be, uh, in good ways and in bad ways. And this is a film from 1974 by writer and director Michael Cimino, not only starring Clint Eastwood, but also Jeff Bridges, a young Jeff Bridges, uh, George Kennedy, Jeffrey Lewis, who you would definitely recognize from those other types of Clint Eastwood films, like Every Which Way But Loose and, and all of those. But this is a this is a whole different lane that it, it's kind of it kind of leans towards those movies, but it also is it's got a little bit of more of an edge to it. You know, it's it's a film about uh, Clint Eastwood. He plays a character named Thunderbolt. We don't I don't think we ever really know his name. Starts out he's posing as a priest. He's probably trying to scam some kind of church. That's what it looks like. Um. Actually, we do find out later in the film what what he's doing, what that whole thing is about. But he's immediately on the run when somebody is after him. And he runs into uh, Lightfoot, who is played by Jeff Bridges, uh, who had just stolen a car. So we've got two criminals who've just immediately kind of been busted for a crime, and they're on the run. And they just turn out to be kind of heading in the same direction, which is away from whoever's after them and they kind of buddy up and go on the road together. And, you know, we see them kind of going out, they pick up some girls, they just have a little bit of a blast. There's also a little bit of like homoerotic subtext, you know, sometimes it's a dialogue. Sometimes it's just their body language. Uh, sometimes it's just even the way things are cut together. It just feels like these are two guys that, they don't necessarily need to be around each other, but they just find themselves drawn to each other. And when in the moments when they get into like an argument or whatever, they have to have a little bit of like a makeup moment and, and sort it out. Still, when you come back to it, it's like these two guys are out looking for a new score. And when it turns out that the guys that are chasing Thunderbolt, Red and Eddie, that's George Kennedy, that's Jeffrey Lewis, when they finally do catch up to them, uh, and that's probably, I don't know, halfway through the movie, I, I kind of felt like, wait, is the film about to end now? Because what what are we doing here? Like, I thought these two guys are going to be on the run from these other two guys for this whole movie. Well, it turns out, all right, they caught up to him. They've kind of made good. They've They've come to an agreement. They're all going to team up. All four of them are going to team up to take down this big score. And that's where I feel like, okay, now this movie becomes a whole different thing. Cause I thought this was, I mean, the title says this is about two characters, but then it's more about all four of these guys really teaming up and going in to take down this job. Now there's a different tone to this movie that I can't quite nail down yet. And I feel like it's in that era where we're talking about the mid early to mid seventies. And one of the films that came to mind while I was watching this was Vanishing Point. And it has a very distinct tone. It's about a man trying to find his freedom and to live life his way and disregarding the rules, disregarding the law. But then you've also got, it, it, you know, at the end of the seventies, you've got films like Smoking the Bandit. And this film, it's like right in between there. I mean, not only in time, but also in tone. You know, it, it is a little bit of that serious R-rated crime drama, but it also has the the antics and the vibes of something that's a little more of a comedy and just a little more playful. And you know, we've got we've got a whole part of the of the the big robbery at the end. The the whole score is Jeff Ridge is in drag and he's trying to distract a guy. And if people only know him from more recent movies, this is kind of a, it's, it's a little bit of an eye opener. Uh, but also you've got, you know, the language is there, the violence is there. I mean, this is a very different movie than something that you might watch maybe with uh, the family. So um, 
it's interesting. It's an interesting watch. I don't know if I'd really, really recommend it so much. I feel like there are other movies that either lean one way or the other and do it in a better way. This one is kind of in between. And I, I guess because of where I have watched films and, and the films I've watched over time, I feel like this wants to have one foot in both of those categories of like hard R crime thriller and then maybe raunchy, lighthearted, playful comedy. And, and those two things in my mind just don't really work so well. So here it was a little odd to try and figure out wh where is this film now? What are we shooting for? And I don't know, maybe it was really in a time before they figured out like how to really do these buddy heist road movie deals. And it's gotten better over time. It's been maybe perfected in a way. So I thought this was interesting, at least because of the cast and the era and seeing what this could possibly turn out like. So maybe it's a recommendation. Um, I think there are other films here that are definitely stronger. This one is more of a curiosity. All right, let's keep going here. Film Streak 291, Blue Collar. From the author of Taxi Driver comes Blue Collar, the story of three men who spend their whole lives working to catch up. There's going to be some changes, man, in the union. Big changes. Everybody know what the plan is. The plant just shot for plantation. And I was on that picket line every day. That's right. I'm still paying the bills and the money out of bar to support my family. Who is it? Is it Mr. Brown? Yes. Yeah, my name is Mr. Berg. I'm with the Eternal Revenue. I don't want none. But according to the hospital records, uh, you, you, you claim six and you only have three. I couldn't have all my kids in the hospital, man, you know? Uh... Here, see, we have Sugar Ray Brown, you got Gloria Brown, you got O.J. Brown, Gail Sayers Brown, yeah. Jim Brown, Stevie Wonder Brown. Who's Stevie Wonder? I was going to come by your house and see you, but I figured hey, maybe listen, to get... man. Nobody comes near my house. Nobody I don't invite. And you know, you should be done with that now. You have a behind schedule. This is company time, Bartoski. What are you telling me, man? Is that what we do in the work? Our three men? Let's move it, Zeke. You're dragging. You're always dragging the line. But the thing I don't understand is why you let the union rip you off as much as management, you know? Do my job. Can't nobody say no different. I was my own man when I came to work here. I'm going to be my own man when I leave. That saves you all the time talking about. You're kidding, man. That's our union. I ain't got nothing but one guard. Here's the safe. We'll torture it later. Let's get it out of here. I kept the notebook. Why? I thought you threw all that stuff out. I hear you got something I want. We can change the union with this book, baby. Just leave me alone, man. I don't talk to no government agent. We can't be seen with each other anymore. First of all, they know three guys did it. Two of them are black, one of them are white. Oh, no, no, <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody back. We got the wrong house. How do I protect my family? I'm the only one who can protect you or your family. You're my friend, Terry. But you're thinking white. American dream. If you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Blue collar. All right, you want to talk about a surprise? This is from writer and director Paul Schrader and stars Richard Pryor. We've got Harvey Keitel, Yafet Koto, and they play three Detroit auto workers Zeke, Jerry, Smokey. And this is in the late 70s. This film came out in 1978. But it's set in that time specifically because this is where we see the U.S. auto industry is taking a hit. And Detroit itself is starting to slide. I mean, now, if you want to look at it, we're talking about 45 years later, as I'm recording this, maybe things are different. But here in the late 70s, this is, is a film that, interestingly, really captures that moment in time. Not only the, the location and the, let's say, the economic situation or, or, or cultural situation there, but 
even these characters and the things that they're struggling with. They work in this auto factory. Zeke is the one that's probably the most vocal. That's Richard Pryor. He's frustrated. He's feeling like unheard, unseen. He's got complaints with the union, with his rep. And, you know, it's it's a matter of these guys are feeling like they, they're in a no-win situation. They are three guys that are are just, they're at the end of their rope. They can't make ends meet. They they just need to find a way to get a hold of some money and just get by. What they decide to do when they find out that their union rep, the, the auto worker union, is holding out, is maybe got a lot of uh, a stash of money somewhere, they decide they're going to rob the place. They're going to take that money. And when they decide to do that score and there's no money, the money is around. It's just not where they broke into. Well, then they feel like, okay, well, we really screwed this up. We we made things a whole lot worse for ourselves. But Zeke, he takes a notebook, and that notebook becomes a big bargaining chip in how they're going to get out of this, how they're going to find a way to, to not get themselves in prison at some point. When it becomes known like who they are, like there's like a description of them as the suspects or they decide, okay, they can't be seen around each other. They got to really like keep this thing quiet. They got to draw attention away from themselves. And so that means they have to kind of go their own ways. And that's where we see a whole different side to this story now, because these guys were friends. They were coworkers. They were in on this thing. They were committed. But when it doesn't work out, well, now it's a little bit of every man for themselves. The story takes a turn because it it backs away from the comedy of it all and it leans more into the drama now. The stakes get raised now because, okay, there's no more playing around. Like, somebody's going to go to jail. Somebody might even die. And uh, so, for me, that's what makes this a really interesting story. It starts with the everyman and it starts with what would they do to make ends meet. Then it goes into, like, them building up the nerve to do something they would not normally do that's really kind of outside of their lane. And that's where it is a little bit of like a, they're a little bit bumbling. They're a little bit green at it all, which of course that's, that makes sense. That checks out. Even when it comes around to, okay, how do they not get caught now? And how do they find a way out of this? they all do things that are relatively reasonable that uh, uh, real people would do is they would try and strike a deal. They would try and run away or they might even try and fight back. And so that's where I think um, this film does something that uh, not a lot of these films do. Cause some of the, sometimes these heist films, these caper films, they start to really spin off into fantasy, you know? like what could happen what's the best possible outcome or even hey what's the worst possible outcome right this one I, it stays relatively grounded but it does it in, in enough of an entertaining and a thoughtful way that you feel like oh damn i didn't want this character to, to end up like this or it's like oh well you know what that actually worked out that's actually a pretty smart approach uh, either way i feel like it's satisfying and some of these films, I don't know that they end up satisfying. Look, I think the biggest surprise here is that Richard Pryor as the main character. He's not Richard Pryor, the comedian. And I got to say, I mean, I, I probably haven't seen him in a lot of films when I really think about it. I mean, the, <laughs> the ones that always come to mind for me are the ones he did with Gene Wilder, which I think was like three or four different films where they were always some kind of buddy comedy or whatever. Uh, but here, I, I feel like this might be his best film that I've seen him in that is outside of his comedy roles, you know, the the comedies he's been in. This isn't really a comedy. It's got some funny moments in it for sure. And especially when Zeke just goes off on people because he's just roasting people and laying into people with a Richard Pryor voice, but I feel like it is very clearly 
a character. Like this is not just Richard Pryor, the man, the comedian doing his bits. This is a real character who's struggling with real things as it is written. So um, I think it's interesting to see this and, and I'm really surprised. I mean, I, I, I'm pleased by it because I feel like if you only know Richard Pryor for his comedy, this is a film that can show you the man can act. And I feel like maybe we should have gotten more of that. And maybe there are some other films I just haven't seen yet that are also of this caliber, you know, showing him doing this kind of work. But I guess this one, because he is the lead character and 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 supported by Harvey Keitel and Yafet Kota, who who are not bad actors either. They're like strictly actors. They don't do comedy. They don't do other things. That is their thing. For him to really hang with them and even honestly kind of show them up in a lot of this film, that is, uh, that's pretty amazing. It is, it's just a very distinct voice that he brings already as a comedian to this character who you might think is just going to be there for comic relief, but it actually really drives the plot is really crucial to everything that happens and how everything ends up at the end. Even aside from the cast and what they're doing, I mean, the film itself, it has a, a much deeper message. And I would expect no less from Paul Schrader, who doesn't just make a film just to have characters do things. He is trying to say something. I get that. And this film really drives that point home. It's like these guys that work in factories, that work for unions, they're the backbone of an industry and how things get done. And if you devalue them, you don't appreciate their worth and the work that they do, it's hard on them. And like, I mean, you even seeing it right now, as I'm recording this, we got Hollywood, uh, they've got writers on strike, they've got actors on strike. That means that whole industry is shut down now, right? Nobody can write anything new. Nobody can rewrite anything that's going on. And nobody can perform in anything. And nobody can do press for anything. So if it wasn't finished as of what, like the beginning of July, uh, it's probably not going to be finished for a while. And the idea, of course, is, okay, it's time to put a hurt on these big companies that aren't treating us right, that aren't respecting or recognizing us. And that is very relevant. In this movie, as exactly the type of thing that these characters are dealing with and the, the measures that they take is to try and make their ends meet. And it's, uh, you know, I didn't plan it this way, but this film, one, it's a surprise because of the authenticity and the grittiness of it, but also Richard Pryor really standing out as a strong performer. But also, hey, look, it's super relevant to right now. So... I'll just go ahead and tell you now, I think this is the strongest film in this episode. Blue Collar wins, okay? Go watch it. I saw it on Paramount Plus uh, or Showtime, I think. You'll probably be able to find it to stream somewhere else, but definitely check this one out. Really important, really funny, and really authentic film. Okay, here we go. Next one up, Film Streak 292, The Manhattan Project. It's a brilliant achievement. You'd get the Nobel if you could publish. Publish? I said if. All right, set him up. Someplace quiet, away from prying eyes. Paul, come say hi. Dr. Matheson, this is my son, Paul. He's hot for my mother. He figures I'm a dumb kid. He's so. hot for your mother, really? Uh-huh. He's got all these security clearances. I don't know what they are. Los Alamos, Oak Ridge. What is that? What does it look like? Five-leaf clover, where'd you find it? Growing outside that lab. You know the odds on that kind of mutation happening naturally without chemicals or radiation or something? It's like a billion to one. It never happens. Maybe you're just very lucky. Who knows about this? Just us. We should do something. We can get in there. What can they do to us anyway? We're kids. It's a prank, right? A and 
be car and adjust both when at once. What's happening? It's Paul. I hate to go in there, Charlie. They got stuff in there that zaps you right out. Any idea who he's working with? I don't think he's working with anybody. I think he did it by himself. Who are these people? Does he feel that people don't like him? That he's special or different? Is he unhappy with the present political system? They can't do anything to me. Why not? I'm underage. What do you think this is, a school play? You could start a war, for God's sake. Now stop screwing around before it's too late. The package has arrived, and it's hot. You don't know what you took, Paul. I do not want them off the premises with that gadget, do you copy? Give me a clear shot behind the ear, and I'll turn them off like a switch. I'll say it right up front. I didn't like this film. And it's not that I didn't like the idea or even the uh the intent, but look, this film was made in 1986. You gotta remember, that's the same year that the Chernobyl incident happened. So I have to wonder, this film must have been made before then, and it was released in 1986. So you couldn't have necessarily predicted or expected that there would be a nuclear plant in the world that would have a massive meltdown. But then the other side of it is your film, while it's not the China syndrome, which is directly about that kind of incident or, you know, the fears of that kind of incident happening. This film is so like playful is, is out here just playing around too much with nuclear radioactive material out in the world. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you've never seen the film, I'll kind of give you an idea. But if you've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like this film does not hold up at all. It just not, it's not a good look in 2023. It was probably not a good look in 1986, honestly. This is a film from writer-director Marshall Brickman, uh, stars John Lithgow, who, look, John Lithgow is always good. And he's good in this film, too. It's just, uh, it's a shame that the idea of the film has got some flaws, got some pretty major flaws, but really I think it's about the execution and the tone of this film just feels all wrong. At least now, I don't know about 1986. Honestly, I feel like it must've been a problem, but now it feels really weird. When you look at this film, it's about uh, a, a young guy, Paul, he's a high school student. He's got a single mom. He's kind of living that life of like, you know, a little bit of carelessness, a little bit of cavalier attitude, kind of like, you know, screw the rules, all that kind of stuff. So him and his mom, they live in Ithaca. It's a part of New York. Uh, He meets a doctor, Dr. John Matheson, I think is his name, works at a facility, quote unquote. Turns out that facility is actually storing nuclear materials, is doing like research, got lasers and all kinds of whatever you know, fancy technology in it. Paul decides he wants to find out more about this place and he thinks there might be something else going on there. So he decides to break into it after getting a tour. So he kind of knows his way around a little bit, but he breaks into the place, steals some plutonium. And the cool thing is, hey man, let's not make a film about a high school student who decides to build a nuclear bomb (laughs) as a science project. At all. How about that? Just not at all. Let's not ever have that happen in a movie. One, because, you know, we just have a different idea of high school students or even just people in schools, in education systems and weapons, right? Like We just have a whole different understanding of that these days. But then also, hey, how about don't have teenagers just handling radioactive materials? Like it's nothing, like it's a can of soda. I don't know. There's so much about this film that I get that maybe it was meant to be a little bit lighter, you know, a little more casual in its approach to what this subject matter is or or, or uh, even the dangers of it and all that. There are moments of it, it really feels like vibes from something like E.T. Or, or The Goonies or, you know, those like short circuit, those kinds of films in the 80s where, oh, this is just fun. It's just an adventure. 
let's just let's just have a good time. You hear the music just kind of spinning up. It's it's this is cool. No, man, you're building a nuclear bomb. We shouldn't have playful music playing in the background of that montage, you know? And, you know, look, as I'm recording this, also, we've got Oppenheimer in theaters. And that's a film that really drives home the importance, the grave seriousness of what it means to design and build and unleash nuclear power. And this film, oh, it's just a cool thing you can do over the summer. No, no, man. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, it's not to the very end of the film when there is a sudden, like a, a, a little bit of a crisis of, okay, Paul, what are you doing with this bomb? You've got to bring this material back. And he decides, nah, I don't feel like it. I'm going to arm the bomb now. And oops. I did something and now I can't disarm the bomb. <laughs> hey, man, don't have a nuclear bomb, okay? So I, that's where I feel like the film tried to really step it up in terms of, okay, now we're getting serious. But also it's like, I can't help but think, wait, how did we even get here? And so, you know, I don't know, man. Skip this film. Watch it if you want. If you're just curious about some weird... 80s era casual approach to everything it's not great oh well keep it moving all right here we go film streak 293 the lookout let's start at the end can't tell a story if you don't know where it's going now that's the end now, what happened before that? Once upon a time, I had the perfect life. Now I have to write everything down just to make it through the day. Any problems this week? Nope. Crying? Raging? Nope. Taking your meds? I want you to write down bank extra clean in your little notebook. That's Chris Pratt. My friend would like to buy you a drink. Gary Spargo? We know each other. I was in your sister's class. I heard what happened to you. And everyone was talking about how you woke up this other guy. Were you with a lady tonight? Where'd you meet her? Gary introduced me to her. Hosts found me, right? What's this? Yes, this is a project I've been working on. Why are you taking pictures of a bunch of banks? Because I'm going to rob one of them. What is this? You know, I need your help. You want me to rob the bank? Don't you want your old life back? You can't give that to me. I was three years ahead of you, and I looked up to you. I'm going to help you. How? Whoever has the money has the power. On the night, your job will be the most important job of all. You're the lookout. Look, I can't do this. Go in there, do your job, and shut your mouth. Where's the money? Start at the end, work backwards. What are you doing here? Okay, here's a film from 2007 from writer and director Scott Frank, who um, I know as uh, the writer of Out of Sight, one of my favorite films, and uh, also Get Shorty, I think. Uh, this stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Jeff Daniels, Matthew Good, uh, Isla Fisher. It's an interesting film in terms of uh, it's trying to take the heist, caper, drama, thriller and come at it from a whole different angle, which is not the angle of the crew or the mastermind, but it's the angle of almost of the patsy, you know, of, of the person who's not really a part of the crew and 
probably doesn't even want to be involved, but is kind of compelled to be involved because of other reasons. And so here, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, is doing a lot of work because, uh, one, his character is named Chris Pratt, <laughs> which this was from 2007. So just a few years later, there turns out to be a real Chris Pratt and turns out to be a pretty big movie star. Maybe not at the time when this came out, but watching the movie now, because look, the characters say his full name. Like you don't really get that a lot in movies, right? Just in terms of the way things are written. It's like, you don't get characters calling each other by their full name. And it happens, at, I think at least a few times in this movie where it's like, oh, hey, Chris Pratt, what's up? <laughs> so it immediately takes you out of the scene for just a half a second. <laughs> but aside from that, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is doing a lot here because he's a character who's dealing with, one, an accident that we see at the beginning of the film that leaves him with some emotional trauma, with some physical trauma. And from that, he's also playing this as someone who, like he has trouble with memories. He has trouble with recollection so it's even a little bit in the camp of something like memento where he has to he has a little notebook and he has to write himself uh instructions or reminders for things because he can quickly forget or lose track or from day to day might not remember what happened the previous day all that kind of thing so he's playing that too and and then also he's playing this guy who is kind of being seduced and and drawn into this criminal family let's say which is matthew good and his crew who are casing different banks turns out one of those banks is the bank that chris works at as a janitor because he's just he's not as capable yet of holding down a, a full, a real career. So he's just doing whatever he can, starting at the bottom, you know? But his goal is he wants to work his way up. And so when Matthew Good, his, his character's name is Gary, and he's meeting Chris and really, like, trying to figure out what's going on with him. And he knows, like, they know what happened to him, his history. They know what he's struggling with. They're trying to angle in to get him to be a part of their crew as an employee of the bank. So now it's like, it's an inside job now. So he's also, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's also playing a guy who's the inside man, who is conflicted about that, but maybe sees a way out because if he can get a split of that money, of the take, maybe that would help him. But at the same time, he's trying to do right. He's trying to live his life right now based on things that happened in the past. So, does he want to go down this path? You know, so there's a lot of different levels he's actually playing in this film. And I think he really kind of holds it all together in a, in a good way. Even towards the end, things really start to ratchet up. The job starts happening. It's got some drive to it. It's got some emotion to it. I mean, I feel like everybody who's in this film delivers. Even Jeff Daniels, who he's not part of the crew. He's not, you know, he's kind of a side character, but... His moments, he really brings real Jeff Daniels energy to it in a good way. He's kind of a older brother, father figure to Chris, and he leans into it, which I think is that's him doing his thing. And I think it all adds up to be a, a pretty good dramatic cast. So for me, it's a recommendation. You know, it doesn't really get big and, and there's not a lot of action in it. It is more about this one character and, and all his internal conflicts that he's struggling with, but also has the, the criminal elements and the heist element in it. So I would recommend it. I saw it on Showtime. I think it's a, it's a pretty solid film. Again, it's not as strong as Blue Collar, but maybe second place, okay? All right, last one for this episode. Film Streak 294. No sudden move. You said a man wants to see me. Alley out back. Can't come in here. What is he, white? 
Now, this is a more recent film from director Steven Soderbergh, who I think I've gone on record saying I enjoy so many of his films. I enjoy so much of his style, his approach to filmmaking, even the stories he likes to tell. And here, I feel like this is a little bit of a return to some familiar territory because we do have a crew pulling a, a heist and things don't always go as planned. And I feel like Steven Soderbergh of all people has really found his lane with this type of movie. One without a sight, which I just mentioned a while ago. Also, of course, all the oceans movies and even something like Logan Lucky. So this is somewhat familiar. I feel like for Steven Soderbergh, and this film, I, I got to tell you, I mean, one, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of an odd animal because it came out in 2021. It was shot in the height of the pandemic in 2020. And I just feel like something about that whole process, that production process during that time must have rubbed off somewhere because there's something about this film that just, it lacks I don't know. There's like an energy that I feel like is missing from this film. Like, I can't tell if it really wants to be serious and, and just a straight up crime drama, or if it is trying to have elements of comedy in it. I mean, and it does, but I don't, they don't really land the way I think they were supposed to land. I don't know. It, something's just off about this film. And look, I'll be honest, like, there's a good portion of this film where I don't even know what these guys are stealing and why they're stealing it or even who they're stealing it for. And maybe that's even intentional because they even asked themselves like, wait, what are we doing? And so I feel like this was a little bit of a mishmash of some good ideas and some great execution. I mean, this is a period piece, really. It takes place, I think, in the 50s. And to do all of that with the cars and the locations and the, all that in the middle of the pandemic, when everything is super highly restricted and compartmentalized for safety and all that, that's a lot of effort. And I just feel like it didn't quite translate to what ended up on screen for some reason. I don't know. It's just something about the whole plot didn't really hook me. I didn't feel like I really cared at the end, 
about what these guys were doing and who, who they were doing it for even. You've got all these different characters in here at play and they steal a thing. Then it turns out, oh, well, there's actually another layer to this. And then there's other people involved. And then it, who, who's all responsible for this? It goes way up the chain. When we're even talking about like maybe something like corporate espionage. We're talking about the Detroit auto industry at a time when things were about to change. And maybe somebody's trying to cover that up. Maybe somebody's trying to prevent that. There's just so much going on. And I don't really know if it all comes together in the end. So I don't know, maybe honestly, I feel like it's one that I might watch again just to see like, what did I just not connect with? And I'm that much on Soderbergh's train that I'll give it another shot at some point. But in the first watch, I just, I don't know. It didn't really land with me. Take that for what you will. No sudden move. That's on Max or HBO Max. I wish I could say better things about it, but at this point, I don't know. I I can't really do that right now. Okay, so look, that's another episode of Film Streak. I'm taking a look at some heist films. And I'll just say it again, Blue Collar, that's probably the one to check out. That was one I was really impressed with. And uh, might even go back and watch it again pretty soon. But look, hey, go to filmstreak.com. You can find other episodes. You can subscribe. Do all those things. But uh, in the meantime... Hey, just uh, stay in the shade, stay cool, and go watch something new.